Uh, this has been a challenging series for me. Uh, I don't know about you guys. This has been a real challenging series. And God's bringing some stuff up in my heart that's just, it's just dark. I just, frankly, I just don't want to look at it, you know? And he's bringing it up to the surface. And but what I'm, real, what I'm learning, what I'm realizing is he's bringing stuff up to bring it out of me. He's bringing it up to take it out of me. And I'm realizing that I need his grace. And he has plenty of it. Um, so that's good. That's good. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. Uh, we're looking at another episode in the life of Gideon. If you guys remember uh, from last week, uh, we talked about Gideon. He's a very fearful man. Uh, he, in fact, he, he's, he's kind of the guy who's like afraid of his own shadow, right? <laughs> he's got great difficulty in trusting the Lord. I mean, you might say he even crosses the line into unbelief. He just doesn't believe what God tells him. Yet the Lord uses this doubting, fearful man to deliver his people from bondage to false gods, to false idols, which is kind of one of the themes we've been talking about in this series. So if you would please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful, fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and only 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say of to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So we brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and the Midians are given into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear them what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent, and it struck so that it fell and turned upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his cam comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. 
God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And I want to come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Niels. Let's pray, family. Lord God, we love you for being a good and holy and gracious God to us. We thank you for your word. We need to hear from you. We need to hear from you, Lord. I pray, God, today that you'd help me disappear and that Jesus would be put out front, that we would glory and revel in our rescuer and our redeemer, that we would hear from you because we need to hear from you. And help us listen. Help us listen. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Success tends to swell our heads. Now, one thing that sports fans love to debate, they love to argue about, is who is the GOAT. Do you know what I'm talking about? The greatest of all time. They love arguing about that. Arguments are made based on how much success that a player has amassed, playoff appearances, championship trophies won, uh, MVPs they've accrued, all-star selections, points scored, yards passed, shots blocked, hole-in-one they've made. With every success and victory, you're just that much closer to being crowned the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Uh, LeBron James made no small stir in the sports world at the end of last year when he declared himself to be the greatest basketball player of all time. Does anyone remember that? <laughs> all right. We've got a witness. All right. He said that leading the team to historic victory over the Golden State Warriors when they were down three games to one was the defining moment for him. That's what kind of turned the lights on for him. He said this, quote, I was super, super ecstatic to win that one for Cleveland because of the 52-year drought. Uh, the first wave of emotion was when everyone saw me crying. That was like, that was all for 52 years of everything in sports that's gone on in Cleveland. And then after I stopped, I was like, that one right there made you the greatest player of all time, close quote. After LeBron made that remark, the response from the fraternity of legendary, living legendary basketball players was nearly unanimous. They basically told LeBron, look, you may uh, be good enough to think you're the greatest player of all time, but you never say that about yourself out loud. <laughs> you never say that out loud, even though you may be thinking that. Success tends to swell our heads. Now, it'd be easy for you and for me to wag our finger at LeBron, to point at his statement and feel really smug and feel really self-righteous about that. 
I can't believe he'd say that out loud about himself. I can't believe he thinks that about himself. Am I right? I would never boast in myself like that. Maybe not out loud. (laughs) Right? Am I right? Maybe not in regard to our basketball skills. We wouldn't boast in ourselves, but how about our parenting skills? Right? How about how we're a model neighbor compared to all the other neighbors in our homeowners association? Or how about how we excel in our work skills and our job? Or how about the success we experience in our own spiritual life? Do we not boast in ourselves then? Maybe we find ourselves experiencing victory, actually experiencing victory over certain sins that used to constantly enslave us. They they don't trip us up like they used to, not as frequently as they used to, not as long as they used to. God has actually given us victory in particular areas of our life and over sins. We just can't believe that some people are still dealing with this stuff. Why can't they be more like me? Maybe God has used used us to actually be a spiritual leader in our own home. He's used to be a spiritual leader in our own network of friends. He's actually done it, what we have been talking about last week. We see success now in our family. We see success in our friends. Instead of just only backsliding, only failure, we're seeing these spiritual successes now because he's using us. One of the themes and judges that we've been uh, encountering is that, yes, God wants to accomplish his will in this world through us, through his people so what happens when God actually starts using us what happens when God when God actually starts granting us or crossway success in accomplishing a mission how, how do we handle that success that's the big idea of the message today we are called to boast in the Lord remember last week the, the calling was to live life courageously. We see another part of our calling as God's people. We are to boast in the Lord our God. Three things uh, from the text that I want to talk about that help us boast in the Lord to live up to and into this calling. And the first is that we need to sense the weakness of our strength. We will boast in the Lord when we sense the weakness of our strengths. Let's, let's go here to verse 2 through 7. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And then 22,000 people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. But take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone who says to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. God has called Gideon to deliver his people And Gideon has accepted the call only after he asked God to prove that he was with him. Remember that? And not once, and not twice, but three times. He says, God, you're going to prove yourself. Because apparently God meeting him face-to-face in the form of the man is just not like enough confirmation for him. And God goes along with Gideon's 
request until finally, finally, Gideon believes that God really is with him on this mission. And so somehow, Gideon has gathered about 32,000 men to fight this great horde of Midianites. That's no small accomplishment. There's so many Midianites in the valley below, the Bible says they cannot be counted. Sand on shore against 32,000 Israelites. This is going to be a quick battle, right? This might be over before lunch is served. It's, it's, it's going to be a really quick fight. And God looks at this, and he says, I see a problem here. Before this battle takes place, God says, I see a problem. Now, we expect God to say, the problem is there's too many Midianites for you. 32,000 is too, too few. But that's not the problem God sees. Instead, God says, here's the problem. There's too many of you. The problem is when there's too many Midianites. I'll give you more soldiers. I'll give you more armament. The problem is there's too many of you. And if I give that victory to you now, you'll say, my own hand has saved me. My own hand has delivered me. What? So God starts whittling down God's, uh, Gideon's already small army. In the first round, about 22,000 of the 32,000 pack up all their stuff in their sacks and go home. Don't need to tell them twice or three times. <laughs> They're gone. I mean, just imagine, guys. Imagine with me the psychological impact that's got, that had to have on the remaining men. Hey, Gideon! I mean, I wonder, like, if he, I mean, 22,000 is a big crowd. I wonder, like, if he wanted to, like, walk out too, and no one would notice him. It's got to put fear in the guys that stay. If those are all the fearful people leaving, watching, and then hearing almost 70% of your team just walk away from you at the drop of a hat, you got to start questioning yourself, like, why am I staying? <laughs> what am I going to do? And then God says, there's still too many of you for me to save you, to give you success. Even now, you will boast in your wisdom and might instead of my wisdom and might. And so there's another round of, of layoffs. <laughs> there's another round of reductions, right? God has the army take a drink from the river, and some lap the water up like dogs, and some cup the water up to their mouth, now, we're all thinking, like, what's the significance of them lapping like dogs? Here's the answer. None. There's no significance in that. It's an entirely arbitrary test that God alone has designed just so he can thin out the army. Could have said anything. It's just his way of separating people and thinning out Gideon's already small army. God, listen, God sends, at this point, 9,700 more men home leaving the 300 dog lappers left, okay? This is, by the way, and this is not like the 300 Spartans, okay? The elite, all right? Which, by the way, that story came hundreds and hundreds of years after this one was written. This is the 300, that's the leftovers. God looks at this and he goes, finally, finally, here's an army weak enough that I could actually use for my glory. Isn't that amazing, guys? Brothers and sisters, sometimes our strengths can be our biggest liability when it comes to giving God the glory that he deserves.
You and I need to know that. God gives us resources. God gives us talent and skill and wisdom and knowledge and ability to use to accomplish His will on earth. Yes and amen. And we are supposed to be, we are responsible to cultivate those skills. We are responsible to cultivate those talents. So we're supposed to go get an education. We're supposed to receive formal training. We gather more experiences. We gather various kinds of experiences. So we are competent in different scenarios so that over time those talents and abilities that the Lord has granted us will become more developed when we employ them. You can't take this text and make an argument for anti-intellectualism. We're supposed to cultivate all those gifts God has given to us, yes and amen. But even though we know God is the ultimate source of our talents and resources and abilities, we are always tempted to trust in them for success instead of God himself. That temptation is always nearby, to trust in the gift instead of the giver the talents that we've cultivated instead of the one who granted those things. The temptation for you and I is very real and it's not far off in the distance from us. When faced with difficult situations, we are tempted to trust in all the hours we spent practicing and training instead of trusting God. Look at all the hours that I logged. I got this. We can do this. I've got certificates that say I can do this and degrees that say I can do this. We're tempted to trust in the resources that we've accumulated over the months and the years to meet the challenges in front of us instead of trusting in the Lord our God. We are tempted, as a psalmist says, to trust in our princes and our horses and our chariots and our army instead of our God. Or maybe trust in that friend that's always there for us. They always know what to do. They always know what to say. They're going to be there for us. Instead of trusting our God, who's closer than a brother. And God looks at you and he looks at me and he says, Look, you have an army that's too big. You got an arsenal of gifts and strengths that's just too big for me to deliver you right now. You need to sense the weakness of your strengths. Your strengths are actually preventing you from relying on me. Your strengths are actually suffocating your faith in God instead of helping you rely on God and go to God. I don't want that for you. You're saved by faith, right? The just shall live by faith. Sometimes, sometimes God takes us through a time of strength reduction. Sometimes he takes us through a time of strength reduction. Do you know what I mean? What I'm trying to say is sometimes, sometimes, God prunes away things that we are relying on instead of him just to show us that we've been relying on them instead of him. We didn't even know it. The things that we're trusting on to get us through challenges and get us through difficulties or difficult people. Things that we've secretly made into functional heroes instead of God being our actual hero that we trust and worship. And so he prunes them away. Our gifts just aren't working in the situations like they used to be. Our talents, our skills, they're just not as effective. They're not as efficient as they used to be. What's going on here? It's always worked. He frustrates that. He takes away the consolation that we used to get from those things. And that's a kindness of God. 
He's not being mean. He prunes them away so that you and I can see that if all we have is God, then we have everything that we need. He does that for us. Why? To show us that Jesus is really enough. How do you know Jesus is enough when Jesus is all you got? That's how you know he's enough. Do you see? It's a kindness. It's a harsh kindness, but it's a kindness. It's a mercy. It's a grace. You see, it takes the reduction of our strength to see the strength in knowing that. It takes him showing the weaknesses of our strengths to gain that powerful insight. It doesn't come in any other way. We'll boast in the Lord when, secondly, we sense the strength of God's weakness. We'll boast in the Lord when we sense the strength of God's weakness. Let's go to the text here, verse 13. Now, when Gideon, came, uh, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. Sounds like the man of La Mancha, doesn't it? Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent laid flat. His comrade answered, this is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned back to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. I just heard this dream, and now I'm sure. And so he divided the 300 men into three companies. You got 100 and 100 and 100, right? He put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Are you picturing this? Are you in the story? Can you visualize the, the, the setup here? I need to make something real clear here. The Lord is the hero of the story, not Gideon, right? Gideon is a hollow hero at best. And by the way, the Lord is the hero of every story that we read in the Bible. This is a major principle of Bible interpretation. We go to the Bible looking for God being the redeemer of his people. That's the ultimate point of all these stories. It's God is the hero, not Gideon. It's God is the hero, not David and Goliath. It's God. God's the hero of every story. Only then can we actually do what God is telling us to do when we get that part first. The Lord has set up this situation. It's a total setup from beginning to end so that everyone will clearly see that the Lord alone brings salvation and victory, not Gideon, and by, and by extension, not us. God demonstrates that he alone is responsible for salvation by using the weak things, according to the world's reckoning, to bring salvation instead of using strong things, according to the world's reckoning. And you and I are called to boast in the Lord, and we will boast in the Lord to the degree that we sense the strength of God's weakness. I want you to look at all the weakness that God uses to bring salvation to his people in this text that we just read. Not only has the Lord whittled down the army to 300 dog-lapping soldiers, but the Lord gives a dream to two, to two unbelievers for this purpose, to strike fear in the hearts of the enemy and simultaneously put courage in the heart of Gideon and Israel. 
A dream does that. And it gets even weirder. It gets even weaker. Here's the dream. One pagan says to the other pagan, here's my dream. A loaf of barley bread rolled into our camp and struck the tent. And it scares me. Uh, and it's not exactly a terrifying image, is it? Right? It's like the scary dream a four-year-old would have, right? <laughs> this piece of bread is after me, you know? This rogue loaf of barley came and smashed my tent. I mean, you would expect a tiger or a lion or a, like a lightning strike storm to strike fear into all these strong Midianites, right? But oh no, it's a rogue loaf of bread. <laughs> They're terrified. God is using something weak to show how strong he is. God can use anything. Isn't that great? And the other pagan interprets this dream. He gets this interpretation all of a sudden. Oh, this rolling loaf of barley bread can only be Gideon. And it clearly means that God has handed over our entire army to him. Come again? <laughs> what? I gotta be honest. Like I, I don't. Maybe it's just me. That's not entirely a self-evident interpretation of the dream to me, right? That's a pretty specific um, uh, interpretation from an unbeliever. I mean, there's not really a natural explanation of how he came to that conclusion on his own. Why God gave him that conclusion? Don't all dreams interpretation belong to the Lord? Yes. God is using something weak to show how strong he is. But there's even more. Gideon equips his soldiers to go into battle. He's lining them up. All right, boys, let's go. And he's equipping them. Go to the munition dump. Get your stuff, right? What's he put in their hands? Trumpets, all right? Clay jars with flashlights in them. What piece of equipment is suspiciously absent from this equipping ceremony? Swords! They have no weapons! I mean, who goes to fight the enemy with trumpets and clay jars instead of swords? Like, what kind of commander does that? And what kind of soldier accepts that from their commander? Okay, boss, we'll go, thanks. Yet the, I mean, there are no swords. The only swords brought in the battle are the ones the enemies brings, Right? They're the only one that bring a sword. Check this out. The battle is won without a single sword being used. The battle is won instead by breaking clay jars so that light streams out of them. God is using weak things to show just how strong he is. Family, God wants to use you in your weakness through your limitations to show how glorious he is to the world. He's not always going to take away your weakness. He's going to work through your weaknesses and limitations and tiredness. 2 Corinthians 4, 6-7. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure. What's the treasure? the knowledge of the glory of God, right? The gospel. So we have this treasure in jars of clay. 
I can't help but wonder if Paul was thinking about Gideon when he wrote that. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's being emphatic. See, we often think, God, if you just make me a little bit stronger, I could give you more glory. I think that a lot. We think, you know, if you just take away my weakness, if you just keep me from looking so foolish, I could bring you more glory, you know? You know, if I could increase, you could increase. Everybody wins. If I was stronger, I could point more people to you. Guess what? God doesn't need accomplished celebrities and he doesn't need powerful people to bring him glory and praise the world. He just doesn't even need it. He doesn't even need it. That's the wisdom of the world. But the wisdom of God is that he would rather shine through poor, weak, common clay jars that are easily smashed like you and me. And why? Because it shows that whatever power that we exert belongs to God and it doesn't belong to us. And whatever hope that we give belongs to God and not to us. It shows that whatever light people see in us comes from God and not from us. I've shared this story before. I'm going to share it again. I remember when I was a very young boy, I was playing in, in my grandmother's house, like four, five, six, something like that, very young. And I just remember this. She was in the kitchen doing dishes. I was in this room, the dining room, and I could look into the kitchen, and she's got her back to me, and she's doing dishes. She's been over the sink, and she's doing all these dishes from all the family, grandkids and stuff. She's just by herself doing a mound of dishes. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, I just stopped playing with my cars, and I just sat there, and I just watched her do the dishes. And she didn't know I was watching her. And I heard her quietly praying over each and every fork and dish and plate. A prayer. It was a prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for being my God. Clink. You're a good and faithful God. Clink. You supply all that I need. Clink. You've been so good to my family. Clink. Everyone was a prayer. Just prayed. Just prayed. And in that moment, she did not know I was watching her. That moment forever shaped my spiritual life, guys. It changed the trajectory of my spiritual life. It put in me a desire to know the God she was talking to. I, who is that God? I, I, I'm curious. I'm so curious. It put a picture in front of my face that God was worthy of even strong grown-ups to praise him with their mouth. And that going to church isn't just for little kids. It's for all people. And if grown-ups, strong grown-ups praise God, how much more should a weak child like me praise God? That's what I saw. That's what I interpreted, if you would, from that. It showed me that God did not stay in church buildings on Sunday mornings, but he came into the mundane and the everyday part of our life. And I wanted to know God like that. And all Granny did was pray while her hands were in filthy dishwater. That's all she did. But it had a powerful effect on my soul. I'm so thankful for her in that moment. God's strength can come through ordinary moments. It can come through weak people. Praise the Lord. Amen.
we will boast in the Lord when Christ has become our battle cry. You and I will actually boast in the Lord when Christ becomes our battle cry. Look at verse 17. And he said to them, Gideon said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, it's an interesting phrase and we'll come back to that, I and all who are with me, who was, who was getting concerned about before? It was with him. God, are you with me? I and all who are with me, uh, then blow the trumpet also on every side all around the count and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. God has repeatedly shown Gideon that he would be with him through multiple amazing signs. God has supplied courage to the fearful Gideon when, when he needed it most through a dream in his enemy. Gideon's assured that victory because of God is with him. Remember, that's what he's been most concerned about. Are you actually with me on this suicide mission? And here he is. Here's the battle cry that Gideon gives his 300 men to shout at their enemies as they're going down into the valley. Here's the battle cry he gives them to shout. For the Lord and for Gideon. I want you to shout as you're coming at your enemy, for the Lord and for Gideon. And they do. The Hebrew here literally reads, shout belonging to the Lord and Gideon as in salvation belongs to the Lord, or deliverance, the battle belongs to the Lord, and to Gideon. This thing is a total setup. God has set up this entire thing, so it'll be, it'll be manifestly clear that salvation belongs to the Lord, and not Gideon, yet Gideon instructs his men to throw a little glory his way as they go into the battle. He's a hollow hero. And this is going to be even clearer next week for us. You see, guys, the real enemy is not the Midianites, the symptom of the problem, right? Their real enemy is not the Midianites. It is the sin that resides in the heart of every one of God's people, even Gideon, the one he's using to deliver them. The real enemy is the sin of pride. The real enemy is that sin of self-glory, a grab for glory. It is the belief that they don't need the Lord anymore. Isn't that what brought the Midianites to begin with? We don't need the Lord. We got these other gods. I don't need God. I mean, God gave me gifts and God started this out and thanks God, that was great, but we just don't need him anymore. We don't need him. We don't need him. Family, that's the real enemy for us today. It's literally believing that we don't need God anymore. We're good without God. And it's going to take someone much stronger than Gideon to rescue us from that slave master of pride and self-glory. And sin is deceitful. Can make, you can make it make sense that you don't need God anymore. You can look at all his gifts. Doesn't that sound holy? I just said it was his gifts. It's going to take more than getting to rescue us from this in our heart. It's going to take Christ. It's going to take Christ dying on a cross and rising again. It's going to take that. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified 
That's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's foolish to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You and I will never face the enemy of a strained marriage, financial disaster, deteriorating health, or loss of a career until we see that our biggest enemy and our most deadly enemy, the enemies of pride and self-glory, and that they have been dealt with in Christ. Only then will we have the courage to go into those battles. We need to see that Christ has broken the power over sin in our life. And not only that, but he has paid the penalty that we deserved by doing something that looked foolish and it looked weak to the watching eyes of the world. It looked even more foolish than fighting with clay jars and torch lights, but it was really wiser and stronger than anyone could have possibly imagined. Jesus brought salvation to you and to me by allowing his body to be broken in, on a cross. By letting the light of the world be shattered to pieces by darkness and dark forces. By trusting that God would grant victory by rising him back, raising him back from the grave. Oh, how wonderful is Christ. When we see that our biggest, strongest enemies have been dealt with by Jesus sacrificing himself, he said, I will be smashed to pieces for you, oh glory grabber, you prideful one, for the Lord and for Lingle. He did that for you and for me. Only when we get that, only when we sense that, we feel that, will we face all of our other enemies. It's only when this will be our battle cry for Christ to whom I belong. For Christ to whom I belong. Amen. I love you guys. Let's pray. Lord, your grace seems to know no boundaries. And I'm exceedingly glad for that. Thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bring to the service the false gods and idols that we rely on, even if they're good things, even if they're gifts that we prop up to be God things in our life and pluck them out of our desires of our heart, remove them, and replace them with a love of Jesus, a treasure Jesus, wanting to magnify his name. Let that be our battle cry for Christ to whom I belong. Lord, your weakness is so strong. Your foolishness is so wise. Who could have thought? Lord, I pray that you take this good news and you would apply it to each and every heart in the way that you see fit and change us. We don't need more information. We, we need a change heart. So change it, Jesus, by your power. Amen.